You are listening to the City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. I love to go to is a good conference. I love conferences, especially if they're organized well. You know, it's a compelling topic, something to kind of get away from the routine of life and think deeply about this one particular thing. I love a good conference. And being in ministry, there are no shortages of conferences. In the last few years, I have been to theological conferences and conferences that blend art and theology together. In fact, I spoke at a conference last year that blends art and theology together. I've been to conferences on preaching and on pastoral ministry, even our own denomination's convention is almost kind of a a marriage of conference and business meeting. Conferences are one of my favorite things to go to if they're done well, and there is almost always a conference for any topic, including, as it turns out, boring things. I'm dead serious. There's something called the Boring Conference. Uh, The Boring Conference on its website claims that it is a one-day celebration of the mundane, the ordinary, the obvious, and the overlooked. It was first launched in 2010, and through the years, topics at this conference have included, and I am not kidding, sneezing, toast, the sounds made by vending machines, the shipping forecast, barcodes, yellow lines, not blue or red lines, by the way, yellow lines, assorted arcane features of the Yamaha PSR-175 Port-A-Tune keyboard. I'd have gone to that one. Inkjet printers of 1999, ice cream van chimes, how to cook elaborate meals with the equipment found in hotel bedrooms, would have definitely gone to that one. (laughs) And similarities between 198 of the world's national anthems. Sounds pretty boring, right? Except for you'd be wrong. The conference creator James Ward says, the basic idea is that the theme needs to be boring, but the content shouldn't be. There has to be something in the topic that a speaker with a real enthusiasm for it can bring out and make interesting. In fact, he says, most things, if you look at them in enough detail, can become fascinating. There's almost always something there. In other words, the boring conference takes boring things and turns them into joyful discoveries. I think there's something very fascinating about this idea as it pertains to our time this morning in week three of Advent, where we are talking about joy, the topic of joy. Joy is a a reactionary event in large part, is it not? Joy is a response to something that we see or experience. In other words, whenever we experience something awe-striking or incredible, it, it will elicit sometimes a deep and profound sense of joy in seeing or experiencing that thing. And so the whole concept of the Boring Conference is rather remarkable because it's taking things that are generally not uh, included or or generally do not incite joy in an individual, and they're teasing out the small details in it that do incite joy. And if joy can be conjured in the mundane, how much more in the God who is above all things? Our Christmas carol that we highlighted this week is, I think, probably perhaps of all four weeks, the most obvious, Joy to the World. Joy to the World, a favorite among a lot of people in churches today to sing during the Advent season. 
which is, if we're being honest, a little bit strange because Joy to the World was not written to be a Christmas carol. It was written in 1719 by Isaac Watts, who incidentally, I visited uh, the grave of Isaac Watts this summer at Bunhill Fields Burial Grounds in London. Uh, I went to study at Oxford this summer and had a couple of stops in between. You can see in the picture here, uh, right in the back, they wouldn't let us get up close to Isaac. I don't know why, maybe the grounds hadn't been kept well, but this is where he was located. But uh, affectionately also referred to as Bonehill Cemetery. It includes many of the Christian dissenters in England from the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, including the graves of John Bunyan, author of The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, William Blake, famous poet and painter, uh, Daniel Defoe, author of Robinson Crusoe, and uh, our very own Isaac Watts, who wrote not only Joy to the World, but an additional 750 hymns, which is really a prolific amount of songs to write. Joy to the World was not a Christmas hymn. It was not written in light of the first advent of Jesus. It was actually written in anticipation of the second advent of Jesus. It looks forward to the return of Jesus, the second coming of Christ, which makes a lot more sense when you think about it. Let me read the words again now that you know that. It says, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. It makes a lot more sense when you think about the second coming of Christ uh, in, in anticipation of that return in connection to the song. Third, uh, third verse is perhaps the most clear referent to the second advent of Jesus. It says, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. The nations will one day prove the righteousness and the wonders of God's love. Not at the first advent, but at the second advent. The first advent was relatively off the grid. In a small town in Bethlehem, only a few people knew that it was happening. But the second advent is going to be a global affair. Every nation will know. Every eye will see. Every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God. The song was written with the second advent in mind, and it was written with a biblical text in mind as well. And that happens to be the same biblical text that we will find ourselves in for the rest of the morning. If you have your Bibles, open them to Psalm 98. Psalm 98. You can see the imagery in Psalm 98 that inspires this great song that we love to sing every December. But there's so much more to the psalm than that. It's a psalm that reflects the many reasons why we as Christians have more joy than any other person in the world, why we as a people, as Christ followers, should be more joyful than anyone else, and yet here is the wild kicker. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but there are a lot of Christians who are not the most joyful people to be around. I know, shocking. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to talk about why. Why is it that Christians are sometimes joyless? I believe that this psalm, Psalm 98, indicates at least three reasons why Christians often lack joy in their lives and what to do to fix it. One thing that I've noticed often is that the reasons for which people lack joy, Christians lack joy, are self-inflicted reasons, which might sound like bad news, but actually is really quite good news because it means there's something we can do about it. Right? If, if, if we are responsible for a lack of joy in our lives, then perhaps we can change things and receive the joy once again. So let's walk through the text together. We're going to talk about these three reasons a bit more in depth. Are we ready for some fun this morning? Yeah. 
It's not going to be very much fun. I'm just sorry. Not sorry. Let's jump in. Reason number one that you might lack joy this December. Your worship has grown stale. Hmm. Your worship has grown stale. Verses 1 through 3, read with me. Psalm 98. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord, Yahweh, all capitals. It's the covenant name of God. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now, before we jump in, I want to make a theological distinction this morning that is going to be helpful, I think, in understanding what these first three verses really are indicating to us. And that is something about the difference between the nature of God and the works of God. So the distinction is this, that the nature of God is static while the works of God are dynamic. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? I mean that while the works of God are constantly in motion, meaning that God is active within creation, that God himself is unchanging. So let's talk about the nature of God first. The Bible teaches that the nature of God is static or unchanging. Uh, for example, Malachi 3.6, God says through the prophet that I, the Lord, do not change. I'm going to take God at his word here. God is saying, I am unchanging in nature or identity. Uh, Hebrews 13.8, speaking about the second person of the Trinity, says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus is unchanging, in other words. Revelation 1.8, also speaking about Christ, says that he is the one who is and was and is to come, that he is unchanging across time. He is static in nature and identity. However, he is dynamic in his works, in what he does. The works of God are dynamic, meaning that while he doesn't change, he changes everything around him. So God is doing something new. That's another way you could think of it. Isaiah 43, verse 19 he says, behold, I am doing a new thing. God is always at work and therefore always doing something new. Now, if that is the case, that God is always doing something new, then that means two additional things are true for us. Number one, we have new songs to sing as followers of him. Look at verse one again. It says, oh, sing to Yahweh a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Because God continually acts within creation, he is therefore doing new things regularly, we have constantly new reasons to sing new songs. There are new songs every day that we could sing in response to the dynamic works of God. So practically speaking, let's just go right to the practical here for this first point. This is one of the reasons why we as a church body corporately sing new songs every year. Why we add songs to the rotation of songs we sing in worship to reflect this theological reality. It's not just an opinion. There's a theology underlying this, right? That God is dynamic in his works and therefore we should be responding dynamically to him. So we don't sing songs as often from five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. It's not because they're not good songs. They're great songs. It's not because they're out of style necessarily, although some songs from 15 to 20 years ago don't land today quite like they did 15 to 20 years ago. It's not because I don't like old songs. Many of you who are newer here are not even aware of this. It's, it's really interesting to me. You know, back in the day, 
I, I've been here on staff since 2008. I led worship here for over 10 years. And, and, and so back in the day, it was really funny because people would come to me when I would preach and go, man, I didn't know that you could preach. Now, when I sing, people are like, I didn't know you could sing. You can, it feels like a totally different world because it is. But I led worship here for uh, over a decade in this church. Many of these songs that we used to sing are so special to me. They're so special to me. They, they remind me of these specific moments in my, in my walk with Jesus, in my life, right? When I hear certain songs, I think of these certain phases in my life, certain unique struggles that I was faced with, hardships that I went through, and the ways in which God met me in those hardships and really showed up and reinvigorated my faith. And Amazing. They're special to me. But listen, God has shown up a thousand times since then. I don't want to keep singing the old songs. I want to sing new songs because God has done new things. God has continued to act in my life. He's continued to meet me in my current, present struggles. One way to diminish joy in your life is to never sing new songs to the Lord, to get stuck in the past, never move beyond those moments, to never walk with God in the present. Let me say it this way. A stale worship life usually indicates a stale walk with Jesus. Right? You won't have a desire to sing new songs if you have no new reasons for which to sing. That's really what verses 2 and 3 are speaking to. That we not only have new songs to sing, but we also have new reasons to sing as well. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Notice what the work of God accomplishes. There's actually two things that the work of God accomplishes as he is working dynamically in creation. Number one, the work of God reinforces his faithfulness to his people. That's really the idea of what we're talking about here with new reasons to sing. God has, it says, remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. His work reinforces his faithfulness to me. Every time God does something in my life, he is reinforcing the reality that he is faithful to me as a Christ follower. So let me give you a real simple truth concerning worship and how this all plays together. The worship of God should always follow the work of God. The worship of God should always follow the work of God. In other words, worship is a response to, it's the right response to the work of Christ in my life. One reason I suspect people struggle to engage in deep and meaningful worship is a lack of walking with God and seeing him work in their lives. If you show up on Sundays and you're just kind of like, meh, right? It indicates a spiritual disconnect, doesn't it? There's something, and let me be, I don't want to be legalistic about this. It, there are days when you show up on Sundays and you don't feel very good, right? You have allergies or maybe you're sick and, you know, whatever, or stressed or tired, didn't get a lot of sleep. I'm not talking about like a one-off. Everyone is given that. Everyone is afforded that. There's, we're not going to be legalistic about that. There's grace. But if it's a, a pattern in your life every, every Sunday for like months and years on end, we're just kind of, uh, that says something. That, that communicates something. Psalm 40, verse 3 says, he put a new song in my mouth. God put a new song in my mouth. The work of God caused me to sing a new song. Every time God works, he is reinforcing his faithfulness to me, and that gives me a new reason to sing. It's why the style argument, by the way, of worship has never made a lot of sense to me. As a Christian, worship has always been a very powerful thing that I've always loved to participate in. Not because of the style or the production, 
but because of the object of worship, right? I love the praise team here. I think they do a remarkable job every week leading us into the throne room of grace to sing praises to our king. I think the, the sound, the things that God has given us here, I'm, I'm grateful for that. The creativity, the things that we're able to do in response to God's grace, I am all on board with that. But I can be just as content, just to be clear, with a piano or with no instruments at all. Why? Because the style of worship is just not as important as I often want it to be. Case in point, this is why we have continued to add over the last couple of years new songs to us that are about 150 to 200 years old, hymns. They're not new songs, but they are new to us. We've never sung them. And they reflect something that is good in responding to the grace of God in our context here at City on a Hill. Are they relevant? Do they sound contemporary? No. Do they use weird words that we don't usually sing? Yes. Do I care? No. Why? Because I'm worshiping the God of the universe. I don't care about what style it is. We've done songs in the past that had kind of a country flair. I'll just be honest with you. I think country music's a problem that needs to be solved. Hey, you can boo me all you want. I don't care. I'm from Texas, born and raised. It's terrible. Unless we're talking about early 90s country. I can get on board with that. That was when it died. But listen, whenever we start making a big deal about style, I think it reveals one of two things. One of two things is happening when that happens. Either A, I'm trying to appeal to non-believers who are coming in, which is weird considering they have no real reason to want to worship regardless of the style. Or B, I'm making worship about me, not God. And I will tell you, whenever I make worship about myself, I'm usually not the most joyful person to be around. This is one of the reasons I love the leadership that we have in Kelsey Barker and our worship pastor. The time and the prayerfulness that is put into the songs that we sing as a corporate body of believers on Sunday morning. They're less about what is popular and more about how does this reflect the heart of God here at City on a Hill in this particular season. I think that's a very important aspect to the worship life of a church. The work of God reinforces his faithfulness to his people and that leads us to want to respond more and more in worship with new songs. But the work of God does something else too that's real important. Secondly, the work of God reveals his righteousness to the world. So this is what appeals to the non-Christian. It's not the style of worship. Once again, non-Christians don't care about the style of worship. What will impact them when they come here is the presence of changed lives, the testimony of lives that have been changed by the gospel, lives transformed in pursuit of righteousness. The more God, in other words, works in the midst of his people, the more his righteousness is revealed to the world through his people. Whenever we repent of our sin and restore one another in a spirit of gentleness, we talked about that last week. Whenever we have steadfast hope in the midst of suffering, we talked about that two weeks ago, these things reveal something to the world about the character and nature and work of God in the midst of his people. Verse 2 says that he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. I will tell you, the best thing a church can do to become seeker-sensitive is walk in the obedience to the scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit. Whenever we confess our sins, when we repent of our sins, when we forgive one another, when we restore one another, when we serve one another, bear one another's burdens, this reinforces something about who God is to the world. That's why Jesus said, how will they know you're his disciples? By the way, you love one another. There's a message conveyed as God works in the midst of his people, not only to us, but to them. 
And it's very, very important that they see that. One reason you might lack joy this holiday season is that your worship life has just grown stale. You're stuck in the past. You haven't, you haven't moved on. You haven't continued to walk with the Lord and see the new things he's doing and sing the new songs. And when that happens, you become critical of anything that's not your standard. And you lose your joy. Psalm 98 says, sing a new song. He's done marvelous things. Not just 2,000 years ago, but today, right now, he's doing marvelous things. Reason number two, you might lack joy. You're still trying to do things in your own power. Oh, goodness. I told you. It's going to be one of those mornings. Look at verses 4 through 6. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth, break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. By the way, guitars, trumpets, and horns in worship? Take that, churches of Christ. What is going on in these verses? Historically speaking, the context here, this describes the kind of fanfare that a king would receive when he ascends the throne. So when a new king ascends the throne, you would spare no expense in heralding the greatness of that king. And you would do so with voice and with instruments and with song and with praise. Heralding the fanfare, the king has taken the throne, things are going to be great in the land. This psalm imagines a king that is actually so great and so powerful, with influence so wide-reaching, that all the people of the world recognize his authority and they come to pay tribute. They bring their voice, they bring their instruments, they're not just loud, but they're joyful. Notice that it says a joyful noise is made, a joyous song and praises. It's not just big, it's not just loud, it's joyful. It speaks not only the hugeness of the sound, but the heart behind the sound as well. Super important. It's a joyful recognition of the lordship of the king. He reigns, he rules, he's an authority. Now, you know who would not be particularly joyful in this scenario? People who reject the lordship of the king. People who don't recognize the authority of the king. They would be unwilling to participate. They would not want to blow the horn. They would not want to play the guitar. They would not want to sing songs in tribute. People who are still hanging on to their independence. You know, we don't want a new king. We were fine before we had one. I'm just as good of a king as he'll be. They would be joyless people. They would be people that were sitting like this while everyone else was singing. If you look like this during a worship service, you need to evaluate yourself. <laughs> they would be joyless people. You know, sometimes I think the lack of joy in a Christian's life is simply a lack of submission to Christ as Lord. <laughs> I think it's really interesting. Joy and peace, we talked about peace last week. Joy and peace are often two sides of the same coin, right? Peace is knowing that God is sovereign. You, you have peace when you recognize the sovereignty of God. There's peace in that because no matter what happens, no matter how bad things get, no matter how badly you're affected by other people's sin, I know God hasn't been taken by surprise. He's still in control. He's still sovereign. He's still on the throne. And there's peace in that. I can rest in that. I may not know all things, but at least I know the one who is over all things, right? I may not have control, but I know the one who does. And I can rest in that. There's peace in that. So check this out. Peace comes from knowing what God can do. Joy comes from knowing who God is. 
Joy is the result of a relationship with God. When you can say, I know the king. I know him personally. In fact, the king loves me so much, he paid a large sum of money to get me out of it. I used to belong to this kingdom over here, and it was a really bad king, a kingdom. It was a very dark kingdom. And he paid a ransom price to bring me from that kingdom into this kingdom, and I belong here now, and I love the king, and he loves me, and I know he has my best interest in heart. There's joy in that, right? I know him, and he is for me. But sometimes, when I forget this stuff, when I start to think I'm in the driver's seat, I lose my joy real fast. When I attempt to usurp the throne, when I start thinking everything's about me, when I stop submitting myself to the lordship of Jesus, it leaves me joyless. So maybe you lack joy because there are parts of your life that haven't been properly submitted to the lordship of the king. And I want to say this very clearly. I don't think that this is, this is rarely intentional or conscious. I, I think it's a rare thing when, when you're just like, I'm not going to, I'm going to rebel against the king today. Like, I don't think that happens that often. I think more often than not, when I say things like Christ is king, people in this category are like, amen, I agree. Yeah, Christ is Lord, amen, I agree. It's not, it's not a matter of, of, of disagreeing with that. The question is, are the decisions that you make and the way in which you live your life reflective of that reality? Do they reflect the will of the king or do they reflect the will of me? When God says, do this or don't do that, do I go, yeah, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this, this way. I'll ask for forgiveness later. Who's really the king there? Who's the Lord in that situation? That, that's the question at hand. Is, are you living according to the, the will of the king and not your own standard? Psalm 98 is all about making a joyful noise to the Lord who is king. But if you're living as you are king or queen, ladies, there won't be much joy to express. Because listen to me, I love you. I hope you know that. As your pastor, I love you. But you make a terrible king. I make a terrible king. Right? You're not sovereign over all things. You're not even sovereign over your own impulses this morning. You have no capacity to handle the fallen nature of the world, much less your own fallenness, before lunch. So when you sit down on the throne of your life, you will be left feeling joyless because you'll realize things have gotten out of hand real fast under my watch care. One way to regain joy during Advent is to admit that you're powerless, that things have gotten out of control, and to resubmit yourself under the one who can bring it back into order, right? Obedience will always lead to joy. I said this a hundred times, I'll say it a hundred times more. God's law is intended for your blessing and your good. It's going to be a terrible means by which to extract righteousness. If you try to feel like you're righteous through the law, you're going to fail again in the first five minutes of trying, which is why you need a savior in Jesus. But the law itself is intended for your good. When it says to do things and not do things, it's meant for your blessing. It's not meant to rain on your parade. It's meant to actually build you up. So anytime you're obedient to the will of the king, as reflected in scripture, it's going gonna, it's gonna to leave you feeling joyful because you're going to be living in a way that you were designed to live. Maybe you lack joy because your worship life has grown stale. Maybe you lack joy because you're still trying to do things in your own power. Third, maybe you lack joy because you've simply put your hope in the wrong thing. Read the last three verses, verses 7 through 9. 
says, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. You can see, especially here in verse 8, the joy to the world influence, right? It, it talks about the rivers clapping their hands and the hills singing for joy. What does the second verse of joy to the world say? Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let all their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. There's an idea here in this particular part of the psalm that creation longs for the return of the Lord when he, according to verse 9, will judge the world and bring equity and peace to the people. There's a longing for that, right? But then in verse 8, it still says that creation sings for joy together. So, so these verses portray two things that almost seem like they're at odds with one another. Creation is weary and worn out, ready for the return of the Lord, ready to see God establish perfect peace and justice and equity to the people. And yet in the longing, they're still full of joy and singing in worship. There's a lot of tension in those things, isn't there? To long for the return of the Lord in the future and yet be fully content to worship him in the present. That's what the psalmist says creation is doing. That's what we are to do as well. We can acknowledge, listen, we can acknowledge that things are not okay. They're not okay. We should acknowledge that. We live in a broken world, in a fallen world. Things happen that should not happen. Things happen that are bad, that are evil, that are wrought with sin. We should be okay with acknowledging that we're not okay with that, that we desire the Lord to return, to restore these things. And at the same time, joyfully worship him in these present broken moments. So this brings out another connection. We talked about the connection between joy and peace. There's also a connection between joy and hope. You can think of joy as the result of hope enduring. Of hope enduring. In other words, whenever hope continues on, is unwavering in the face of hardship or difficulty, Joy is the result that follows that. Joy follows hope enduring. Similarly, whenever hope collapses or lets you down, joy follows. There's no joy. So in a very real sense, get this, your joy is dependent upon the object of your hope. If the object of your hope then is anything other than Christ, there will be no joy for you. If, if you remove Jesus from the equation, there's no new reason to sing. There's no new songs to sing. If you take Jesus out of the equation, he's no longer Lord over your life, which means you are now Lord over your life, which is horrible news because if you're willing to be honest, you're going to make a mess of things. If you take Jesus out of the equation, there's no future hope, which means the best you have is right now, which is, again, terrible news. This was Paul's whole point, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Bad news. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The ones who have died that you long to see in the resurrection, too bad. You're never going to see them again. They're gone. Verse 19, and if in Christ we have hope in this life only, he says, we are of all people the most to be pitied. If you take away Jesus... You take away hope, and if you take away hope, you take away joy. So maybe you lack joy, 
One of the reasons could be that you've placed your hope in the wrong thing, and you need to evaluate that, because here's the deal. If you're not careful, especially during this time of the year, the world is going to deceive you into thinking that you can derive your joy out of a variety of things that will ultimately fail you, right? Your relationships, your career, your money, your influence, your fill-in-the-blank. None of these things have the capacity to deliver to you ultimate and lasting joy. Your relationships will eventually end. You need to know that. Hopefully, you don't mess them up. Hopefully, they endure, but one of you will eventually die. They will end. Your money will eventually run out. Your career will eventually pass you over. Your influence will eventually diminish. Those things that you believed would bring you joy will eventually betray you and bring nothing but sorrow because none of them last. So let me give you one final truth to think about this morning. When you hope in the world, your joy turns to sorrow. But when you hope in Christ, your sorrow turns to joy. There's a switch that happens. That's what Jesus said, by the way, in John 16, 20. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Why? Because no matter how bad things get, no matter how much loss you suffer, no matter how, how hard things are for you, Jesus will not forsake you. He won't leave you. He won't abandon you. He'll give you new songs to sing. He'll do things for you you are incapable of because he's a good king who's sovereign. And one day he will return to restore this world into its former glory the way it was intended to be without sickness, without pain, without death, without evil, as it was meant to be in the beginning. And that is truly good news for great joy, as the angel said, isn't it? We're just not there yet. So in the meantime, we evaluate this stuff. How's your worship life? What does your worship life say about your walk with Jesus? This is a good question to ask. Who is Lord over your life? I don't mean 80% of your life. I mean all of your life. Are there areas of your life that are not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus? Where do you place your hope? When you look at the time you spend and the mental energy that you put into the things in your life, what is the percentage split between Christ and everything else? That's going to reveal some things to you. And I know that's uncomfortable, but my, my intention here is so that you would address them and be filled with joy again. Because of all people in the world, we, as Christ followers, ought to be the most joyful. I would love to reverse that trend starting here at City on a Hill. But it begins by taking a hard look at these things, evaluating, and then resubmitting ourselves to Christ. Pray with me. Father, we confess to you that there are places in our lives that we have perhaps not submitted fully to you. And so, God, would you bring correction uh, to us? Would you reveal to us in a way that only you are able to reveal ways that we have fallen short of your standard, that we might repent of that and, and move back into alignment with how you would desire us to live? that we might be more joyful people, that, that our lives, that our posture before others 
would just look significantly different than the average person. That there would be a, 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 an, an enduring hope. There would be a, a sense of peace in your people and, and a joy that's unlike anything else in this world. For we know that when we do that, uh, you reveal your righteousness to them. The power of a changed life, God, we, we know is one of the most powerful things. And so, God, would you work in us that we might be a, a banner for your work in this world. Thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your, you are a God who saves. You're a king who calls out of darkness. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. I want to uh, make the quick 11 o'clock reminder, because you're the only service that gets it. Sorry. We need chairs stacked away. So if you can hang for a moment, uh, many hands make short the work. Is that the saying? I can't remember. But we need to stack them, but leave them where they are. So just stack them up. Don't push them to the side. We're going to change this whole room around for Christmas Eve, which I know you're going to be coming to next week at 8, 9.30, and 11, right? Uh, if you can hang around and help, we would be so appreciative. God bless you. Be full of joy.